Paul. It's episode three for you. How are you feeling today? I'm feeling really good about that, Clark. I feel like a, a wily veteran when it comes to this. I'm really settling into the role now. I can't wait to get started. Now, it's good. We had some chats between the last episode and worked out a few things we wanted to talk about today. What's um, what's going on for you just very quickly around life in general? Anything interesting happening for you? Well, I think as with most people right now, life in quarantine doesn't really change very much. It's pretty much same same old, same old, day in and day out. Um, you know, working from home, most days seem to kind of blur together a little bit. Trying to stay focused on exercise, either we go for a walk with my wife and son, go on the elliptical or, or go running. Now that the weather is getting better, I can get outside and, and go jogging. So that, that's, that's been really nice to be able to have the weather cooperate finally. Yeah, just stay active. It's so important right now with everything going on. And you need it for your, your sanity and, you know, just to keep yourself healthy during this quarantine. How about yourself? So I've run 95K this month. Wow, that's pretty good. I had a decision I made that I wanted to run 100K. I've, I've made this challenge for myself several times and I've failed but I decided this month I'm running 95K and uh, or I'm running 100K and I'm um, 5K away. So I have to run today because it's the last day of the month here so that okay. I can hit the 100. Oh, for sure. And I guess you track that over your Fitbit. Does that give you all that information? I use an Apple Watch to, to track it and I use the Nike Run Club app which um, I've got a couple of friends on there who one is a listener of this show, in fact. I'll call her Mrs. C., just so that she can, uh, she hasn't given me permission to use her name on the air. All so right. I'll just, uh, I'll just call her Mrs. C for now. She'll be anonymous then. Gotcha. All right. So what would we got here today? We were in line with COVID-19. We wanted to talk a little bit about something that came up for us. And that was liquor stores and, and the services of liquor stores is considered an essential service as far as businesses that are being allowed to stay open during the, the lockdown or some of the restrictions that are taking place. Do you remember hearing liquor stores being one of the essential services? And did it did that resonate for you in a certain way? I suppose it was probably at least a month ago, the Ontario government announced their list of essential and non-essential businesses. And, of course, liquor stores are deemed to be essential. Uh, I think that's pretty much the same for all provinces and probably for most states as well. So, yeah, having liquor stores deemed as, as essential services, the same would likely apply for vaping products in most jurisdictions. Um, and even within, well, certainly within Canada, uh, marijuana outlets as well. I first heard about liquor stores being considered an essential service for a friend of mine. He shared with me his own struggles with addiction around alcohol. He walked me through a little bit about why alcohol is considered an essential service or why liquor stores being open is considered an essential service. And it got me thinking around, you know, he said in a time of crisis, the last thing you want to do is pull people's alcohol out of their hands. I wanted to look in, I did a little bit of research around what's at stake. What are the reasons why alcohol is considered an essential, or liquor is considered an essential service? And I found a few different sources of information around that that I wanted to share today. Yeah, I'd like to hear what, what you found out, uh, especially from from the Japanese side of things. I'm assuming in Japan, they would have 
equivalent well, of liquor stores, beer stores. Um, so are they open in Japan or other parts of Asia? Well, in Japan, liquor is sold in... We don't have liquor stores. So liquor is sold in convenience okay. stores, supermarkets. There's less of a... It's not like Ontario where you or in many parts of Canada, if not all parts of Canada, where liquor is sold in dedicated stores. And I think they may have recently started serving them in convenience stores, having convenience stores stocking beer and wine, maybe? Yes. Yeah, that's fairly recent, within the last year and a half or so. Right. In Japan, it's it's not really considered, it doesn't need to be considered an essential service because it's just part of the regular service that's going on. But what I found was that there's a few reasons why they considered liquor an essential service. A lot of it has to do with some of the negative effects of taking alcohol away from people who are very dependent on it. It, it can create alcohol withdrawal, which can lead to things like delirium, epilepsy, and even death in some cases. It can also lead to people, if they can't get a hold of alcohol, they'll find other ways of obtaining it. That can include things like making their own alcohol, which you saw during the Prohibition era, people making gin in their bathtubs. and Exactly, yeah. You have two things that can happen. is Either people make their own alcohol, uh, end up hurting themselves, or they find things in the house like gasoline, mouthwash, rubbing alcohol tend, can be substitutes for actual alcohol. Those are a couple of the things at stake regarding uh, why this is considered an essential service. Unfortunately, there's a lot of people out there with severe addiction problems that would likely turn to products which could be potentially dangerous. It's one of those things where people would probably get their hands on alcohol in some form or another, whether it's through the black market, because of the, in most jurisdictions, the stay-at-home orders, you know, you would have people that would potentially travel further outside their state or province to, to go to find areas that would sell alcohol. So you're promoting people from going beyond the, the stay-at-home orders. Yes, And I, I think the other thing too is that governments... I think governments have to tread carefully on this because there's already a lot of criticism about the mandates that they've put down and with respect to staying at home and taking away what some people perceive to be our freedoms. So for for the government to deny, I guess, some of those guilty pleasures, it would come across as being perhaps dictatorial. Some people might view it as the government perhaps going a little bit too far. I think let's keep in mind... Probably the number one factor as to why they're kept essential, tax dollars. Think about the revenue that it generates for a lot of governments. In fact, this is the U.S., as an example, collects $1 billion per month in alcohol tax at the federal level. That's at the federal level. At the state level, it varies quite a bit. Everywhere from Washington State, which is the, the highest alcohol tax state in the U.S., Chart has a $32 per gallon state tax in Washington state. And in Missouri, $2 per gallon. It's the lowest tax rate per state of all of the United States, which you're right. It's a massive amount of revenue that the government wouldn't be collecting if it wasn't available. Well, and let's face it, with all the, the stimulus and the relief packages that the governments are having to, to give out right now, I think they can... They certainly need all the tax revenue that they can get. So yeah. 
for them to close liquor stores and I guess restrict the taxes you would collect on vaping and, and tobacco products, that is an incredible amount of revenue that they certainly need right now. And I, I guess that leads into some of the other vices that we have mentioned, such as the vaping products, you know, the marijuana dispensaries. A friend of mine actually works for uh, a vaping manufacturer and he was, his company was deemed to be an essential service. You know, I'm thinking to myself, why, why would vaping be essential? But the government generates considerable amount of tax revenues from that. Uh, same goes for marijuana. So I, I guess when we sort of, I guess peel the peel the onion a little bit on on these, it makes you wonder, such as the the legalization of marijuana. What, why, I guess governments decide to go down that road because in terms of having to keep marijuana dispensaries open, that's a lot of management that has to go into that. You know, you're introducing yet another vice to the public that creates a situation where people become addicted to that product. And because of that, you're in a situation where you're, you have to now make that product an essential service because of, of sort of opening the floodgates to that product. You know, I'm not talking about obviously medicinal marijuana, that that's a whole different story in itself, but to create, you know, marijuana dispensaries where it's, it's a common occurrence where you have it on, on the, you know, every other street corner type of thing. Um, I think it just, how far do you go? You know, how, how bad do the, the governments really have to go to, to look at additional forms of, of taxation revenue? Well, it's interesting you mentioned cannabis because in this Toronto Star article where I, I sourced some of this information, and I'll include a link to it in the show notes. In this Toronto Star article, there's a lady named Leslie Buckley. She's chief of addictions. I think it's at um, University of Toronto. She states that she agrees with the alcohol being an essential service, but disagrees with cannabis being an essential service because she says, although it can be habit forming, nobody ever died from lack of cannabis as uh, in their system. True. But when you have people coming off withdrawal, whether it's vaping or whether it's alcohol, potentially those people would have to seek medical attention at some point. It may not kill people. When we're in a situation where you're trying to limit the amount of people going to hospitals, you don't want to have create another problem by having these individuals now taking up valuable hospital space. Yeah, that's that's that was something I read here. Um, I think for, for cannabis, it's a little different, though, than alcohol withdrawal in particular or vaping. So I think that was why she was stating that it's not as... Um, not as big an issue. 3.2% of the population has reported having alcohol abuse. 45, the age group that most at risk, at least in 2017, the ages of 45 to 64 made up half of the cases of people hospitalized due to alcohol. People might find this interesting in terms of what they call the Canada's low risk guidelines for alcohol consumption states here that it's considered uh, low-risk consumption levels for for women to drink 10 drinks a week, maximum two per day, and for men to have up to 15 drinks, maximum three per day, which I found interesting. Interesting. Okay. So you're allowed up to three drinks a day. <laughs> yes, men, we, we pay less for our dry cleaning, and we also are allowed to drink more, which uh, doesn't seem fair, but 
I'm I'm glad to hear that I'm under the 15 drinks a week. So I'm I'm doing good. I'm health conscious, right? But I think it was important we shed some light around why is alcohol an essential service in in this time we're living in. We're introducing a new segment to our episodes, and that's going to be certain products or services that we wanted to plug. A product that I've recently been enjoying using is the Soda Stream. So the Soda Stream we got about two months ago, and I got to say, we we love it. It's my go-to thing. I'm drinking way more water because of it. It's easy to use. And it's a little, when you work out the price per bottle thing, it's probably not that much of a savings because these gas canisters are, are quite expensive. However, one thing we are eliminating around here is bottles. We, don't, we no longer take a stack of bottles or a bag of bottles out to the curb But when it comes to recycling day. To me, that's the biggest benefit is it's good quality. It's, it's carbonates the water really nicely. And it also has really dropped consumption of plastic bottles. All right, what's your, what do you got there? What's your product? The product that I'm mentioning today is my Keurig. And although it's hardly a new invention, it's newer, newish to me. Uh, I used to have a Tassimo. I didn't really use it that much because I didn't find that the quality of coffee was all that great. But since getting my, my Keurig, I've noticed quite a big difference in terms of the quality of coffee uh, to the point where it's as good a substitute as getting it from the coffee shop. What I enjoy about it is that it's easier. And the big thing for me is that I'm not going out to Tim Hortons nearly as much. At least one to two cups a day, which I'm not buying from the coffee shop, saves a lot of money. So awesome for me, my big advantage, my big plug for the Keurig is that it's just as good and it saves me money. I wanted to share with you and the listeners this week about something that I'm working on. It's kind of a side project. It's called a mastermind group. It's something that I've been working on for a while and um, wanted to share a little bit with with people around what that was and how it might be beneficial to to others, to listeners. Yeah, I've had some experience with uh, a masterminds or goal achievers is another name for it. In my short period of time with masterminds group, I, I found it to be beneficial myself, but I'm sure a lot of our listeners really don't know much about it. So maybe you'd like to explain. Probably the best thing to do is to explain what it is so people know what I'm talking about. So a mastermind group is really just a group of people that get together. Ideally, a minimum of, you have to have at least two, but somewhere in around four to five people, no more than maybe eight, who get together on a regular basis to talk about different things that are going on that they're working on. And there's different types of masterminds. Some can be art entrepreneurial in nature where it's a bunch of entrepreneurs that get together and bounce around ideas and things they're dealing with and bring challenges to the group and get feedback from the group as to what they're going through and, and receiving advice or feedback or sharing some experiences between the groups. You could also have a real estate mastermind, maybe real estate agents who get together and they talk about how they've been personally able to boost sales and some of the challenges that they deal with. And again, they each can give each other feedback. So it's meant to be, it's a trusting environment. You put trust into the people in the mastermind. My mastermind is based around, you mentioned goal achieving. That's essentially what I've done. It's a, it's kind of an accountability mastermind where we're going to have four people in our group right now. Today is our first session later today. 
and I'm going to share it. I'm running it. I, I set the group up. The, the key component with a mastermind is you got to have people that are are all similar, at least in that they want to, you have a common goal. And in our case, it was we needed to have a group that was open-minded and geared toward achievement and to success and are kind of around similar experience levels. So the, the age range in our group is between 35, I'd say, and probably I'm the older of the group, so 47. Uh, so it's a dyna- not a huge gap, but similar experience levels. It's also a bit of a mix of different paths. We've got one, ph- we got a pharmacist, a data analyst, a recruiter, and then me, who's in financial service and sales and marketing. Well, it, it sounds pretty interesting there. I just want to play devil's advocate here because I'm sure there's still a lot of listeners that are... I hate that expression, by the way. What? Devil's advocate. Don't play devil's advocate. Just ask me. (laughs) All right. Well, you know, then I I want to ask some questions because I I think people are probably pondering right now, you know, such as like, why would one be interested in sharing their problems or their stresses with complete strangers? Like, what is is the investment? What do you get from it? Okay, first of all, in the beginning, they do tend to be strangers. However, part of choosing the members of the mastermind, it's it's not just to put up a want ad in the, in the grocery store or online that says looking for people to be in a mastermind group. This is actually a very comp- important component of a mastermind is you you have to almost hand select your group. So I selected people that I knew, the members of the group, we're all part of Toastmasters, so we actually all already kind of know each other. But to your point about strangers, I'll, I'll say maybe more around people that are less known to you than, say, friends and family or colleagues. The point around that is sometimes you get better feedback from people who have different types of investment in you as a person. I can bounce around a, a struggle I'm having with my wife or, my say, my parents but it's different than it is when you talk to people who are outside of your circle of usual influence. So that's a big part of it is you get a lot of benefit by talking to people who aren't as invested or vested in your your life. Yeah, what's well, interesting you say that. You know, I was going to ask like what expertise would these people have in being able to solve my potential problems? What if it's something that is specific, something that is unique to me? You know, people that don't know Perhaps if it's a if it's a career type of question, if they don't know anything about the industry in which which you work in, how would they be able to provide that expertise or that guidance that you're looking for? Well, I think in some cases, like your example there, maybe they don't have an expertise in the insurance business, but they have expertise or or they've had experience being looking doing a job search or being interviewed by people in in that particular field. They may not have had specific experience in whatever field you're in, but the challenges you may come up with, such as you're trying to find a new job or you're having a struggle with a manager or a, a team, that many of the people in the group are going to be able to relate to that type of a struggle as a manager or as a teammate. They may not know, say, about the pharmaceutical industry but they might know what it's like to work with a team or have a, a bad boss, for example. Okay, so with the concept of this masterminds, I'm assuming a lot of it has to do with accountability. When you have tasks at hand and you discuss it, 
I suppose you want to be accountable to these people, but why is that? You know, why would this work? Why would you feel accountable to these people, though? Well, that's a good point, too. Being accountable to your wife or your spouse, for example, or your partner, is a little bit different than when you, you know, you make a commitment to something. As an example, let's say that between, ideally what you do in the meetings is you agree to what you're going to do between now and the next meeting. So each person gets a chance to air some of the challenges that they're having, and then they get feedback. And then there's supposed to be a takeaway from that. So I'll just use a really simple example. For ex- for instance, let's say I wanted to sell my car. I'm, I'm going to be leaving Japan soon. I didn't buy a car here, but let's say I had a car and I needed to sell it before I left for Japan, which or before I moved back home. That means I've got two months to sell this thing. If I've been procrastinating doing that, first of all, the people in the group are all from Japan. A couple of them own cars and a couple of them may have some opinions around what it means to sell a car in Japan. As far as action items, maybe the action item I walk away with is that by next week, I'm going to place the car on a online used car website. And by doing that, I know that the next time I meet with these guys a week later, that's going to be one of the things that's going to come up. It's like, hey, Clark, how did you do with selling, putting your car online? Did you do that? And there's a big difference between when my wife asks me, did I put that car ad online versus knowing I'm going to have four smiling faces looking at me that are going to ask me, how did that go? And it and it, it does push me to, to be accountable. Yeah. And I guess as long as they do, you have that sense of wanting to be accountable then if it helps you achieve those goals, then I suppose the group achieves its its purpose or the purpose as to why you signed up in the first place. Exactly. Is your motivation potential embarrassment? You don't want to show up empty-handed at these meetings? Is that maybe a motivator to, to want to you know, have something to show for it? Or show- Embarrassment's... A- that's a big word. That's it's not it's not embarrassment. It'd be more like there's a maybe a I'll use the opposite. Maybe there's more of a pride in the fact that Yeah. No, you're right. Yeah. Now that I'm showing up at that meeting with something accomplished is is a good feeling. And uh, that's just me. I mean, I don't know about other people, but I think most people do need some kind of accountability in their lives. I like the the unbiased approach to it where Yeah. If you talk to your wife or spouse about something, they bring in other elements. They bring in things like, well, how much are you selling it for? No, I think we should get more for it than that. Like, It's just a whole different kind of conversation than it is when you talk to people. So what I want to do is I'm going to keep you guys posted on this. So today is our first official meeting. So next episode, maybe I'll share with you a little bit about how the first meeting went. Hey, if it allows you to stay on track and allow you to get things done, then... That's that's super. If it works for you, then all the power to you. Yeah, thanks. I'll put a note in the show notes or a link to Mastermind so people can do some reading up on it if they, if they want to. So the headline is Russian runner jogs 62 miles of laps around bed. It says here, a Russian runner who spent nine months training for a now canceled race tested his endurance in home in his home by running laps around his bed. So no, he ran around his bed for a total distance of 62 miles. Wow. If he lived in an apartment, I hate to be the guy in the unit below him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it said he, uh, he ran laps around his bed due to the COVID lockdown and he tracked his progress with a fitness bracelet. 
said he gave hourly updates via Instagram live videos and said that the run took 10 hours and 19 minutes. Jeez. Wow, that's incredible. You know what? Good for him. Good for him to be able to do that, to have the motivation and the commitment to do that, running around your bed for 10 hours. Wow, that's that's pretty repetitive. Said he was training for a marathon in, oh no, a 155-mile race through the desert in Morocco, but the event was postponed due to the coronavirus pandemic. Yeah. Yeah, and I read that he he was inspired by a Frenchman who ran a marathon on his balcony. That's interesting. Yeah. yeah. Didn't know about I don't know, that. Run, running on the spot or just running around in circles? Wouldn't you get dizzy after a while? Because I, I can, running around your bed, it's not a big area. I, I think you'd get dizzy or, I don't know, it wouldn't, wouldn't sound like fun to me, that's for sure. God, the monotony of that alone would, would I don't know yeah. how it, that would be possible. All right, the next one, our, our second story is coronavirus spurs service to avert divorce in Japan. I wanted to bring in a J- Japan story here um, around what they're doing to help the divorce epidemic that using not the greatest of words to counter the other epidemic, the coronavirus epidemic, that divorces are apparently up due to the fact that people are living in closer spaces together. They're having more conflicts with one another. And this article in particular is pointing out a service that has been brought in to avert divorce in Japan. And basically what they're doing is hotels are opening up their space and catering and advertising to couples who are perhaps challenged in their relationships and are looking for a place to separate from one another during the the lockdown. Yeah, it's certainly an interesting point you make because I think everyone's probably joked about the fact that once the quarantine is done, you're either going to have a lot of a lot of divorces or or a baby boom within a couple of months time. Mm. It, no doubt that this is a very challenging and, and stressful period for a lot of couples and for those that perhaps have a relationship that may not be the strongest yeah i'm I'm sure you a lot of people definitely need that break from one another so i suppose that yes it's a good idea to have that opportunity for people to get a break depends on what they're doing in the hotel room though does it talk about that yeah they they mentioned that they've set the the environment up for teleworking mostly so that people can work from okay. the hotel rooms so that they can actually do their, their job as well. Um, so that's a that's a big thing. Does it go on to say anything about opportunities for people to potentially have affairs? Well, it doesn't mention that, but okay. the, the hotels that are, some of the hotels that are offering these services are what are termed short-term, well, the name they use in Japan is called a love hotel. And that has a, maybe a bit of a a weird sound to it, like maybe something a little shady. But in Japan, it's very common practice to have hotels that are around on a kind of an hourly basis, not just to service people who are looking to have affairs per se, but also travelers that just need like places to stay for a couple hours while they wait for a flight and they don't want to sit at the airport or they, they don't, they want to just, go somewhere where they can catch three or four hours of sleep. They have these things called love hotels, which started after the after World War II 
in Osaka, actually, was the very first Love Hotel. These hotels are some of the hotels that are offering this service of letting people stay in the in the hotel while they're going through, uh, try to just to separate from their families. Yeah, and looking at this article, it looks like these hotels tend to be more of the the luxury or, or business class. So as soon as you say Love Hotels or, or hotels that, you know, <laughs> rent by the hour, you automatically think of a pretty seedy place. But these are far from it, right? Like these tend to be, uh, I guess, nicer hotels. Someone, had, this was on Twitter, someone had tweeted as far as why they were looking, well, where the the idea came up for the service at all came from tweets such as, my husband lacks a sense of urgency and I am dismayed. I don't want to be with someone with that kind of mindset. It's Corona divorce. Hmm. Interesting. <laughs> I suppose these things have been around for quite some time, and uh, I'm assuming that the, the Japanese culture is is accustomed to this and, and knows how to treat these types of hotels effectively in that, you know, you could easily have a hotel that could go down the road in terms of prostitution or promoting affairs, um, even potential for human trafficking, which is a big problem now. So it's a slippery slope. It, it is. You know, I, I guess couples are going to be unfaithful and it's just a, it's a fact of life. And I suppose if these hotels provide a safe environment, a clean environment, then it's one of those things where people are going to do it anyway. Well, in a bit of the research I did, they, they have it's a very discreet sort of arrangement. You literally kind of go into a nondescript kind of doorway and you, it's almost like a vending machine where, or a, a screen where it, it allows you to pick the room you want and then you put your credit card in. And there's actually very little to no interaction at all with any human being. You just get your room card and you go to your room. And then I guess the other person somehow can do the same thing if it's in fact for that kind of purpose that you're meeting up to have a, uh, an affair. But I've also read that these hotels are very popular for couples that are just living in very close quarters with their families and couples that are just looking to get out of the house and have some intimacy together in a you know clean and safe environment um, outside of the home. That's a good point. Yeah, if you got a bunch of kids and you got the in-laws living with you, it's not exactly a great opportunity for romance. So if it allows couples to connect, then I guess it's a good thing. Yeah, and if some people were wondering about costs for this, so they're, the, the prices are range anywhere from 4,400 yen, which is about $60 Canadian or 50, 40, uh, about $35, $40 US uh, per, per night. Monthly fees start around 90,000 yen, which is about 120 Canadian or about 80, $80 US per, per, or sorry, $800. Yeah, $800 a month for a monthly fee. So they're only generally one room with like a king size bed, of course. <laughs> and, um, yeah, fairly nice surroundings. They've made these places. They're not seedy hotel rooms like you might see. I mean, some of them might be, but generally they're, they're quite well kept up. Yeah, and I think that's an important important point to, to, to make here. And I think you'd also might be interested to know when I did just a little bit of research here. Did you know that actually one of these, quote, love hotels opened up in Toronto in 2019, but it eventually closed? I did read that. Yeah. 
Yeah, I'm wondering if, if the concept didn't catch on with, with North America. Well, does the article say anything about that? What, what does the article say? Uh, I didn't, I need to maybe do a little bit more research on that. I, I'd be interested to find out as, as to what happened with that. My guess would be it closed just because the concept just didn't resonate for people. Yeah. It also might have not worked because people may have, they may not have done a good job with how they offered the service. Maybe it came across as being very seedy or I think the marketing of that might have been at one of the reasons and they just failed to resonate with people as to what the purpose of it was and, and maybe people felt uncomfortable using it. Yeah, that would be my guess as well. Certainly sounds pretty interesting. Something to look for when you go to Japan next, right? We're going to be introducing a new concept on our next podcast or our next episode, which is um, a documentary review. But we don't have our documentaries chosen yet, but we're going to announce that on the next episode. No, and, and that's a good point, because I think right now a lot of people are pretty glued to Netflix or Apple TV. So to have a recommendation for a thought-provoking documentary, I, I think a lot of people might be interested in hearing that. Well, I think it'll be interesting to hear just our take on the documentaries, what we liked or didn't, and also if listeners choose to also watch the documentary, they'll be able to have their own perspectives on it and sort of share share it uh hear what we think and, and compare. We'll see how it, how it goes and um, try it out. Yeah, I look forward to it. I think it should be good. All right, I'll see you next week. Take care. See you next week. Stay safe.